Nobody knows what the future holds, but this is the closest you'll get, for the extractives industry anyway. You're listening to High Grade, and I'm your host, Osa Bushian. This is High Grade. You think you're rich, uh, but in reality you're not rich. The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource, the infrastructure that's available, and the governance environment. Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change. Creative destruction, people losing, people winning. What we need to fix is politics, not the resources. Welcome to High Grade and to our first ever editorial podcast. Today, I'm with my colleagues Nick DeBossio and Mark Slade to bring you a curated view of the industry and the trends that will shape the extractives over the coming decade. Nick, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Osa. Hi, Mark. Very nice to talk with you today. Likewise, Nick. Always good to get together, both of you. And of course, we work very closely in high grade and in every interview and product we've released over the last five years. But it's actually the very first time that we record a conversation, the three of us. Yes. So for people to recognize our voices, I am I'm Nick. Which means I must be Mark. Mark, you sound a little stuffed today. Uh, people will wonder if, you, if this is how you really sound. <laughs> Do you have a COVID or cold perhaps? Uh, no, I am uh, usually slightly crisper sounding than this, but uh, thankfully it's just a cold. Good to hear. Glad nothing too bad. So after that little disclaimer, also you mentioned five years doing high grade yeah. uh, and what a journey that's that's been uh, and a privilege the uh, people that have uh, been in the show and all the, uh, the knowledge they share. So to them, uh, our recognition and our gratitude. Mm. Five years, huh? Crazy. Yeah. Um, and yet, the first time that you hear the three of us all together. Um, so I suppose that uh, now that High Grade has benefited from, from so many guests over the years, it's, it's pretty much long overdue that we share our own thoughts. I agree. So thanks again for joining me, guys. Nick, today we're discussing trends in the extractive sector. Yes, and we're putting forward five main trends. And we do this in the world and in an industry, undergoing quite dramatic transformation. So we want to explore in what way is global change influencing the extractives and vice versa. This means that the industry will influence some broad global developments, but also in some cases, it will be the industry that needs to adapt to broader global change. Mm. Mark, we limit this to five trends. How do we pick these five trends? Maybe that's the, uh, the hardest part also. Not so much recognizing the trends, but just picking a top five. Mm. Nick and I do, though, at least have the, uh, the luxury of a decent vantage point. With uh, our consulting hats on, we, we experience firsthand what captures the attention of our clients. And uh, as we often say in the industry, what's important to the client tends to become an obsession to the consultant. <laughs> now, to be fair, obsessiveness doesn't tend to help with perspective. So when we want to step back and, and gain perspective, well, there's always high grade, as, uh, as hopefully our listeners would, uh, would agree. Mm. And I'd at least argue that having managed to, over the years, capture this wide range of views from, from the visionary to the, to the practical, that, yeah, we've got a pretty good sense of those, uh, those key trends. So maybe let's not think of this as our high-grade top five, but 
instead as the the curated views of the the industry at large. So let's get into it. Trend number one, the ongoing energy transition. This is not new, and it's one that we have featured extensively on High Grade. Nick, let me start with you. How do you think about the energy transition? Basically, uh, climate change remains at the top of the global policy agenda, and it's not going to go away. If anything, it will continue to gain momentum. There was a bit of a political impasse in the U.S. Uh, during the uh, Trump years, but the Biden presidency came with at, at least a pledge for new commitment. Mm. Now, what does this mean for the industry? We can look at this from a perspective of mining or from a perspective of uh, hydrocarbon uh, fuels. And in both cases, it comes with disruption. So for mining, first is the attention to minerals associated with the energy transition. And here there is a sense of uh, an impending supply gap. Um, we hear a lot about copper, but there are all the others uh, as well. And, and these minerals tend to be more concentrated geographically than in, the, in other cases, with obvious implications for the producers, but also in terms of a security of supply for the consumer countries. Mm. The other big issue is, of course, around energy as an input into mining production. We already seen bold CO2 reduction targets by companies. So the question is, how is this going to impact the cost structure of these companies? Hmm. For the oil industry, I think it's uh, even more fundamental. It's about survival. Uh, how is the oil industry going to adapt and change over the coming decade? I think we will need to follow this very closely. And this is very interesting from the industry's perspective, but ultimately consumers are a key driver of this trend because of their climate change concerns. I remember in our interview with Tom Burke, he said that people like cheap energy and they like green energy and they leave it up to business and governments to sort it out. Mark, would you say that business and governments are doing enough to meet this social demand for both cheap and green energy? It's a key question, right? Hmm. Ultimately, for the world to transition to low-carbon electricity, then renewable sources need to be cheaper than fossil fuel. And historically, that just hasn't been the case. So consumers have been left facing a choice between cheap energy or green energy. Hmm. But... Renewable sources respond to technological advancement, and fossil fuels generally don't. So year on year, we've seen that, that solar and wind power in particular continue to, uh, to get cheaper and cheaper. Now, for me, what's really exciting is that we've reached that tipping point. So in most of the world, power from solar and onshore wind in particular is now cheaper than power from fossil fuels. And that means that that contradiction of cheap and green energy is no longer. But coming back to the question, insofar as, as, as both business and government have, have, have fostered these technological advances, then I suppose, yeah, you can, you can make a strong case that, that both have been doing their part. Mm. But I am inclined to conclude with a degree of caution. There are outliers and important ones at that. Most obviously, although it leads the world in wind and solar installation, China also installed more coal-fired capacity in 2020 than the rest of the world retired combined. 
And as we know, that new capacity just isn't going to sit idle. So this speaks, I think, to the challenge of coordinated international action. Mm. You know, maybe it's just delaying the inevitable, but important outliers, the Chinas, the Indias of the world, they can and they do have the ability to influence those global trends. Moving on to the second trend, a research in resource nationalism. This is a trend that has ebbed and flowed in recent decades. Nick, why is this topical? As ever, these trends don't come from nowhere. Mm. There is a global context of political volatility. The US-China trade tensions are playing internationalism, and, and we've seen this playing out in international commerce as, for example, in terms of access to, to, to vaccines. For the extractives in particular, then the question of security of supply has never really gone away. Mm. Um, you know, back in the 70s, it was geopolitical tension around oil, and, and therefore the Middle East uh, was the battleground. In the uh, early 2000s, the uh, super cycle was driven at least mostly by growth in China and others to a, to a lesser extent, and affected pretty much all commodities. I remember soya at $600 a ton, but particularly bulky minerals, you know, the, the, the iron ore and the, the coal. It was all about China, as David Humphreys said in one of our interviews. Exactly. And today it's still playing out, but more linked to the future economy, to, to rare earth, to lithium, to manganese, to, to, to copper, mm. where at least in relative terms, China has more of an advantage than, say, iron ore. Yeah, Nick, interesting. You, you mentioned iron ore. Um, remember the super cycle that, uh, that finished, what, a decade or so ago, which proved China's impact as a customer, at least, um, you know, in fact, in commodities like iron ore, they, they literally rewrote the terms of the industry. The implication, though, of this shift you talk about to battery metals is maybe that pressure on China to, to pursue international supply, perhaps it eases, given their greater domestic resources of, of those battery metals. In effect, why chase overseas what you already have at home? Um, that said... To put forward a different view, I did see some research recently that uh, China in the decade since the super cycle actually increased the share of global mining that it controls more than tenfold, mm. which is done by buying resources in places from Serbia to Australia to Peru, etc. And so, Nick, I, uh, I wonder, do you see that trend of, of, of pretty aggressive international expansion slowing down? It's a good point, Mark. Uh, take the uh, last five years, for example, of all the mineral assets that change hands. More than half went to Chinese companies. Mm. We are not seeing the end of that trend anytime soon. I'm with Nick DeBossio and Mark Slade as Highgrade's editorial team considers the future of the sector. How is global change reshaping the extractives industry and the other way around too? Well, we do have a range of perspectives here. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you will react to trend number three, pressure on resource taxation. Nick, why is this emerging now? It's not really emerging now. Uh, this is a recurrent issue, but conditions are now ripe. Remember that the global economic headline remains that of the uh, post-COVID economic recovery. And, and so we now live in a world of high levels of debt, and this is uh, both public and private debt. 
So in mining, high mineral prices uh, plus fiscal pressure equals or tends to equal uh, an opportunity for a value grab. Mm. Governments will need resources, so I think we can expect increased pressure on mineral taxation. Um, just as an example, see the rhetoric uh, emerging in Peru with the presidential election of Pedro mm. Castillo. Oil is a, a bit different. Uh, while mineral prices are high, fossil fuels are not particularly so, um, which adds to the economic challenges of oil producers, particularly think Middle East and, and Latin America. But COVID contributes to this, don't you think? It is playing an important role. Insofar as COVID puts pressure on public finances, yes, it does play a significant role. Mm. Nick, let me uh, let me jump in here. Um, you you frame this as as government reaction to macroeconomic pressures. But what about citizen pressure? Remember last year we we produced a video for the IGF on the future of resource taxation. The argument was that COVID has in fact accelerated calls for social change and that this has a direct bearing on resource taxation. Mm. You know, the the reality is we live in a world where access to an understanding of, of the industry's tax arrangements is better than ever. And um, that's coincided with the new media landscape, social media in particular, which amplifies those uh, those previously muted voices. So I'd perhaps argue that it's inevitable that with the increased knowledge and the increased ability to be heard, that there be greater citizen pressure to review those value-sharing arrangements. And that's the truth. It's it's a topic that we see much more prevalent in public debate today. So I think as a, as a result of social frustration worldwide about topics like inequality, cost of living, etc., that uh, the extractive industries do need to increasingly prove their contribution to uh, to society. So, Nick, look, you and I do agree on the on the trend of increasing pressure, but I, I think it's important not to overlook the the citizen component of that. And the issue of social change brings us back to our fourth trend: heightened social pressure for impact. Nick, with new times come new expectations. Indeed. Uh, and there is a new face to social movements, at least in, in the West, you know, the so-called social justice, which comes with more reactive activism and increased scrutiny on corporate behavior. And also comes with a new attention to, to the issue of inequality more generally and the distribution of wealth. On that point, uh, we recently ran a social media poll asking our audience what the biggest development challenge of our time was. Uh, would it be, for example, climate change or post-COVID economic recovery? Perhaps surprisingly, the most frequent answer was income inequality. Yes, and, and possibly one implication of this is, is on the scope of what is the relevant level of corporate impact. Mm. Uh, I joined the, um, the industry at the turn of the millennium uh, and everything was about paying tax. It was about community programs and, and frankly, not messing up the environment too much. Well, social expectations are much, much higher today and, and some companies are starting to see competitive advantage in delivering economic benefits beyond defense. That means, really, to secure mineral resources, you sometimes will need to look at economic development beyond mining. Um, this, just to be clear, this was a taboo a decade ago. This was a no-go zone. 
arguably, Anglo-American has taken the lead in this regard, at least in the mining sector. And we recently talked with Marco Tifani, their CEO, and he explained the strategic importance he attributes to supporting regional development beyond, as you say, immediate operations. Mark, is this lip service or do companies really care about these things? Yeah, I've got to say, I too enjoyed the the interview with Mark Tifani. Now, in the same way that I, I suggested earlier that, that good consultants obsess over what matters to their clients, I think it's fair to say that, that good companies really do care about what matters to their constituents. So, you know, I, I think there's probably two distinct drivers for the need to, to deliver impact. The, the first of those comes from beneficiaries themselves. At Ergo, Nick and I just last year carried out a perception survey in an important African mining jurisdiction. And one of the key insights that emerged was local residents' ability to clearly distinguish between the socioeconomic performance of different companies. Mm. And they formed a much more favorable view of companies that acted upon community concerns than those who merely paid lip service or worse. Mm. And let's not forget Ernst & Young in their annual survey of business risks for mining companies yet again identified license to operate as the greatest risk the industry faces. And in particular, they highlighted the likelihood that broader community contributions will in fact come into sharper focus post-COVID. So, you know, turning this to the practical element, I think this means companies both delivering and better communicating their full contribution to society. Now, remember, I did mention two drivers. And the second of those comes from investors who, for some time now, have been turning up the heat on how companies operate. You know, investor activism really has arrived in earnest. Think of it, for example, of, uh, of Rio Tinto last year uh, and the changes there following the, the Yukon Gorge tragedy. Mm. But what's interesting is that while we've witnessed increasing investor environmental social governance pressure for, for some time now, its focus has evolved. The, the main thrust in the early days was undoubtedly environment. But the emergence of COVID and the social impacts that we just talked about, it really does appear to have rebalanced somewhat the interpretation of ESG. And that now includes renewed focus on, on social performance. You know, not just mitigating adverse social impacts, as, as has been the trend for, for, for years now, but actively contributing to, uh, to positive change and demonstrating it. So to me, it's perfectly reasonable that, that companies like Anglo-American, who themselves made considerable efforts to, to integrate regional development into their strategy, are in fact likely to find themselves a step ahead of, of their peers in relation to this trend. For the fifth and final trend, industry acceleration in the adoption of technology. The extractives have been flirting with automation and robotics for some time, but it's still a conservative industry and it has been a laggard. Nick, is the industry finally catching up? For a decade, the industry has been talking, as you say, also about uh, AI, automation, the Internet of Things, and, and, and those sort of things. Uh, then COVID came along, and in one year, uh, accelerated significantly a number of very practical changes. 
For example, many of our clients, and I'm talking about um, large, very large companies here, uh, are now not planning to return to the office. So for a lot of functions, home office is here to stay. Mm. Now, this is just an example, but I think it is fair to say that while in the past new technology adoption was uh, driven mostly by uh, on-site safety, today is also about resilience more generally. Now, it's not denying that this is happening, but at the end of the day, the pit is a pit and a truck is a truck. That has not essentially uh, changed. So I think it's valid to ask the question, to what extent is this particularly uh, new wave of, of technology is going to fundamentally change the economics of the industry? Mm. Nick, I think you're right. Um, technology hasn't just boiled down to a matter of safety or cost in recent times. The the resilience that you point out is a key dimension. And the the very fact that technology has enabled companies to to largely keep operating during the pandemic is, I suppose, in, in many respects, a cause for celebration. But that is just one side of the coin. You know, as with any change, and, and, and most certainly with, with technological changes, uh, there's always going to be a risk of both winners and losers. And um, in the context of the other trends that we've discussed, heightened social pressure, it, it does seem to me to be critical that we stop and ask ourselves about those who risk being left behind and what can be done about it. And so, you know, in short, how do we make sure that the costs of change don't end up landing at the feet of the most vulnerable? Mm. Now, notwithstanding this risk, I am inclined to to conclude on a on a note of positivity. Um, we we recently discussed automation with with Henry Auger from Sandvik, and also you'll recall he was uh, he was quite optimistic about the impact of technology on uh, on host communities. Yes, he was. It, despite what we read daily in industry press releases. I agree with his assessment that the changes just won't happen overnight. And as a result, there is time to adapt. Uh, you know, examples include retraining that part of the, the workforce likely to be affected by, uh, by technological advances. Now, it's obviously easy to be positive about the future. And ultimately, only time can prove Henrik and I either right or wrong. <laughs> but I do hope for the industry and all of us involved in it that, uh, that both of us are, are correct. Mark, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks also. Great to talk. Thank you also, Mark. It's been a pleasure. There you have it. The five key trends that will shape the extractive sector in the coming decade. The ongoing energy transition. A research in resource nationalism. Pressure on resource taxation. Heightened social pressure for impact and industry acceleration in the adoption of technology. It's been a pleasure to have Nick and Mark on the show today, our first editorial podcast. As always, thank you to our sponsor, the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on whichever podcast platform you are using. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, so long. So long.